This is episode 8 of the Three Bucket Podcast with me, Aditya Dewan. At the dawn of the third millennium, humanity wakes up, stretching its limbs and rubbing its eyes. Remnants of some awful nightmare are still drifting across its mind. There was something with barbed wire and huge mushroom clouds. Oh well, it was just a bad dream. Going to the bathroom, humanity washes its face, examines its wrinkles in the mirror, makes a cup of coffee, and opens the diary. Let's see what's on the agenda today. For thousands of years, the answer to this question remained unchanged. The same three problems preoccupied the people of 20th century China, of medieval India, and of ancient Egypt. Famine, plague, and war were always at the top of this list. For generation after generation, humans have prayed to every god, angel, and saint and invented thousands of countless tools, institutions, and social systems. But they continued to die in their millions from starvation, epidemics, and violence. Many thinkers and prophets concluded that famine, plague, and war must be an integral part of God's cosmic plan or of our imperfect nature, and nothing short of the end of time would free us from them. Yet, at the dawn of the third millennium, humanity wakes up to an amazing realization. Most people rarely think about it, but in the last few decades, we have managed to rein in famine, plague, and war. Of course, these problems have not been completely solved, but they have been transformed from incomprehensible and uncontrollable forces of nature into manageable challenges. We know quite well what needs to be done in order to prevent famine, plague, and war and we usually succeed in doing it. This was the opening passage of Homo Deus, perhaps one of the most provocative books authored in the 21st century. And as you can tell, it poses a rather interesting observation that the demons that once haunted us, famine, plague, and war, may have begun to fade. And with this observation comes the equally important question. If our old demons fade, which ones will take their place? what will be at the forefront of humanity's challenges in the century to come. On episode 8 of the Three Bucket Podcast, we have someone who has worked to uncover some of these challenges. Ahan Maini is an intern at the machine learning company Quantify, a nanotechnology researcher creating unique solutions to problems at the nanoscale and has worked extensively in the neuroscience field to understand how to better treat disease. Ahan, welcome aboard. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I've been listening to your podcast for a while and absolutely love it. So such an honor to be here. Yeah, thanks, man. And actually, I just wanted to start off the podcast by asking you, like, what are your thoughts on that intro? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've heard about the book Homo Deus, definitely on my reading list. But I think one thing that comes to mind is there's this painting. I don't know too much about the history of it, but it's called The Garden of Earthly Delights. So if you can Google it, if you're listening, it's just basically the way it's depicted is there's three panels. On the left, you have a panel that's almost empty nature and you have a lot of exotic animals and you have sort of one goddess and just Adam and Eve. I think that's what's depicting. And in the middle, you have the panel of growth, overpopulation, civilization, almost looks like overpopulation. And a panel on the right, you have sort of the time of death or also depicted as hell. And so... I think that the future of humanity definitely has a lot of potential with this, obviously like the rapid rate of innovation and all the revolutions that are coming. Mm-hmm. But I do think like ultimately we are, I'm trying to think right now, it's like 
is it always going to end in the third panel? Is there a way we can expect, like, sort of alter the change, alter fate so that it doesn't always end in death? And, like, death is a part of life. And death is an important part of life because death is what gives life life's meaning. Like, gives life meaning, excuse me, right? Because it shows you that, like, your time is limited. So I think that's just super motivating. But I think, I'm not sure how far away this outcome is, but my real question is that, Will humanity have a way to avoid this outcome from happening altogether? Yeah. Right? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's impossible to tell on one end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's an interesting how you mentioned that death gives life its meaning. I mean, of course, I've like I'm friends with a lot of like uh, what should we call it longevity enthusiasts, and they would <laughs> argue they would argue the complete opposite <laughs> that death is a disease that must be eradicated. But it's interesting, and especially with what you're saying, like you know, does I guess all progress have to end in dystopia. And, you know, that kind of leads to my next question. Like, do you see the next couple of decades? Because obviously in the last 20 years, we've made substantial progress. Like, it is incredible. Like, I was reading a post the other day, and basically for every major invention that was made on a timeline, they had like a little tick mark, right? And they only did it for up until, I think, 1970. And someone uh, in the comments was mentioning that if they plotted those same tick marks from 1970 to 2021 today, that you literally wouldn't be able to see a single one because there are, were so many world-changing inventions in the same period, which is just interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I guess That's leading awesome. back to the question... Yeah. So I guess just leading back to the question, like, do you see our future as dystopian or dystopian? Yeah, first of all, a very difficult question, very interesting question I'd love to discuss. <laughs> but I saw that same post, actually, and it is really crazy, right? And if we're asking this question, maybe on the Three Bucket podcast, like 100 years ago, you typically look at history, right? Like, as you mentioned, introduction is all about the three major demons that are facing plague, war, and famine, I believe you said. But then, because of the rapid rate, like the exponential growth, you can't really look at history to predict the future anymore, especially in the third millennium with all these advancements. And I think it could be, it's like the double-edged sword of humanity, right? It's like, humanity has the capability to, like, increase our lifespan, like you mentioned, longevity, and to, like, save the world, invent new types of energy sources. But they also have the same capability to invent nuclear bombs and actually use them on each other. So Mm. it's it's really just, like, what are the two faces of humanity and which one will win out in the future? I do think that it depends on what, not our generation, but our coming generations, what they choose to focus on. If you sort of would think about it as if if you're performing like a pre-mortem on the earth, right? What are the major things that can cause it to shift Mm -hmm. into a dystopian society? If you got to be like focused, you got to zoom out and make sure you're focusing on making real progress in the limited lifetime we have. I mean, limited for now. This lot of longevity (laughs) enthusiasts would disagree. But it's all about how much progress can you make towards these important changes that prevent it from becoming dystopian, right? The first thing that comes to mind, obviously, is that climate change. I'm assuming Elon Musk and Bezos haven't taken us to Mars yet. We, or we have a planet. We need to secure our planet. So we need to make real progress on not allowing dystopian to be actually driven by our environment and not having a healthy environment to live into the future. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring it up. It's like almost... So the way I'm just going to kind of like repeat what you said in my understanding so I can make sure I'm understanding this. So you're basically saying that it's almost like a pathway 
with multiple forks in the road and we kind of have to choose the right decision for each one like global yeah. warming would be a fork and maybe uh, i don't know like another major problem is biodiversity loss and you keep going on and on until right. eventually you're either so far curved to one direction that it's dystopian or mm-hmm. you've made the right choices and it's utopian right and i think it plays to the fact that like if you don't it has to be a fork in the road right it's i don't think we're mm. too far in right now where you can't shift outcome because if there's no without like dystopian option utopia means nothing right so again like think mm. the whole thing about like good can good exist without evil and like yeah. can utopia exist without dystopia so it's just i mean it's something <laughs> very heavy things think about how like I said, we have yeah. this limited time span of life, or supposedly limited for now, and what can we do to ensure that we're taking it towards the path of utopia? Mm-hmm. One thing I do want to bring up, though, is like, if you look at dystopia, and also like in the imaginary world, like Hunger Games and stuff, but I think it's the similar definition. It's about like mass suffering and justice, and technically, we have that in our world today. We have mass suffering and justice in our world today, but we also have such like positive outcomes, such revolutions, such exponential growth, for the future of humanity that's why it's literally like the fork in the road exactly like you mentioned it that it's, it's going to go one way or other just depends on the decisions you make yeah you know that's it's interesting that you bring that up because if on one hand like you were mentioning that we have like it's a dichotomy in a sense you know like you have both of them right existing so maybe the answer to the question is that neither like it is impossible to have either utopia or dystopia and right. it will almost always be like a ratio between the two and you can work exactly. towards increasing one or the other in a way yeah i think that's actually the perfect way to put it is that it really depends on like what stakeholder you are and what perspective you have because right now yeah. as like someone is more privileged like ourselves it's definitely more of a utopia we're not living but then mm-hmm. when somebody maybe suffering from war play, um famine hunger because there's still issues yeah. they face maybe not whole like century driven the problems they're facing but there's still important issues today do definitely be leaning more through the dystopian side and it should really be in the future how can we maximize the utopian lifestyle for as many people as we can yeah, so just branching off that, I mean, it's an interesting thought you were mentioning based on the fact that, you know, people's perspectives are essentially what determine whether it's like the future is utopian or dystopian. And it's interesting because what that essentially boils down to is that we essentially choose based on what we think the future will be. So if someone thinks that the world will be a certain way, then there is a higher chance that they will act in a way that acts and supports those beliefs, if that makes sense. So they will actively work to make their worldview a reality, which is really, it's a really interesting philosophy. Like I've heard people like Jordan Peterson talk about it, never really like struck me as something too, I guess, like deviating from the current path and the way we live society today. But now that I'm really thinking about it, like, damn, Mm -hmm. if most people think that society is going downhill, then they'll act in a way that does make it go downhill. And that's just an incredibly scary thought. Like, what are your opinions on that? Yeah. I'm, I mean, definitely, like, I agree with you. I think there's two parts. I mean, like, when you took it more about their perspectives, everything you're saying makes sense. I think it definitely is. There's a lot of predetermined factors and, like, just luck is involved, like, what, what privilege you're born into in terms of how, what your perspective is, as well as, like, 
everybody's perspective is mostly determined from their thoughts and their life, as in like what knowledge they've gained, what experiences they had, and that shapes the unique perspective of the world. So obviously, if you were in something like in the suffering from war, your worldview would be more dystopian. Now, coming to the next point, is like one of my favorite mindsets and philosophies is the stoicism, mm. as in like essentially what they're saying is exactly what you said about how your what your perspective defines your life. And what they argue is that, like, this doesn't fully apply to the scenario, but what this philosophy stoicism argues is that there is no good or bad in the world. It's only your perspe- your perception of the event that makes it good or bad, mm-hmm. right? Like, you got fired. Okay, that's terrible from one person's perspective. If they love their job and they're doing great. But the opposite, now you get to explore and maybe um, have a chance to change your career or develop new skill sets. So always two ways or, like, a 100 million ways to view each scenario. Just depends on your perspective. Then what you're saying about... However, your perspective is that's what you'll tend to act to. I think that's true. I think that's true for a lot of things about how just whatever you believe enough, you'll work towards make that work towards making that true. And if you take it like working towards making it more of a dystopian society, it's definitely very scary. I do agree with you there. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting fact that you brought up. Do you think that there's, oh yeah, one last, do you think that there's a way you can help to change someone's perspective Hmm. i mean like persuasion is sort of a tactic that's sort of been but that's more of like convincing as in they have technology you think there's a way we're able to change perspectives and will it actually help maybe in the crime with like rehabilitation and like the new prison system or is it just your perspective is like rooted in your beliefs and your experiences you know yeah i've been thinking about this question a lot lately like I don't know if you've been watching the news, but, like, politics is going crazy, you know? And all I could help but think is that how do people have such different perspectives? And how do they not recognize that? And how do they not recognize that if someone else was put in exactly the same set of experiences as you, the likelihood that they would also end up with the same perspective is also high. So to answer your question, like, I think I have a little bit of a controversial take on this. But my opinion is no, like you yourself cannot change anyone's perspective. But what can happen is that you can you can influence it. Right. But ultimately, the person the person themselves has to take in your actions and words as a stimulus and act upon it to change their perspective. Because, I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried. You you probably have. But like, have you ever tried to like, like, let's say someone believed in something very strongly. Right. Like, let's say, uh, I don't know, like post-secondary education wasn't the best. Like, let's say someone believed that. Right. If you've ever gone up and tried to explain why it was good or a deferring perspective, it doesn't really matter what the issue is. Like, it is very incredibly difficult because even if you're presenting like logic facts and even if you're appealing to them emotionally, it simply cannot work unless the other person is willing to understand you. So I think the short answer to that question is, in my opinion, I don't think so. Right. And I think that's definitely valid. And I do agree. It's like, if you try to convince someone to sway their beliefs just for you, most of the time it doesn't happen. I do think that ego plays a part in that. And just because of nature, especially if it's sort of talk to like ego and spite, they just want to like stick to their beliefs. However, I do agree. I think 
the most in terms of changing people's perspectives, it comes from their experiences, right? And ultimately, I agree with, it might be slightly controversial, I agree with what you're pointing about, nobody can actually change your perception except for yourself. But what you can do is, like, by influencing it, what I interpret that to be as in, you give them the knowledge, provide them knowledge, you can take them through the experiences to allow them to see alternate perspectives and see that maybe there is another side to the question, there is another side. Like, if you've ever been in a fight with someone, and then after you're thinking, you're like, crap i was wrong i did this wrong because he finally said like let me get out like yeah. zoom out of my head and actually look at this issue from like non with like without perspective neutral and you see that there is actually two sides to the equation i do think that's definitely yeah. the way to go yeah absolutely you know this reminds me of something that uh i don't know if you've heard of jocko willing maybe yeah, yeah i have he's the navy yeah. seal all right he has this um like he has these principles for like conflict, like his main thing is about discipline and leadership, right? But he also has this thing about perspective. And one thing that he mentioned, which I found like really striking in a sense, was the fact that in order to manage any conflict, you need to have the ability to detach in a sense, right? And it's basically what you're saying. Like when you're in something, you can't see it in a way. Like imagine that you're in a plane, right with like a bunch of other people and the plane's like on fire you can't see it unless you're on the bottom or unless you have some way of getting information so yeah so like from a technical standpoint it's like to gain information to solve the problem you need to look at it from a different perspective and detach and zoom out as you were saying otherwise you can't like it's just impossible (laughs) what are your thoughts on that definitely yeah that doesn't make sense. I mean, I was just reading one of Paul Graham's essays, and it's, he's talking about a completely different principle about how, like, revolutions and in industries in, like, that's technology industry. But what the same principle applies is, like, if you're the water, you can't see the hmm. wave, right? And, like, basically, you need to detach because I think our mind, like, we are so ego-driven, like, all of us, not saying I'm not, I'm not saying, all I'm saying we are, like, really ego-driven and personality, just, you need to detach and actually consider it non-biased from neutral perspective in order to actually make progress, like, especially if you've been, like, I know we've done our, like, United Nations challenge, let's say, right, and you're arguing with a team member, but where's, which is the best approach to go, you're so stuck in your approach because you want to be right, but then we actually realize maybe their approach is better. You need to, the, the way you realize that is if you just continue to say, I'm right, I have the best approach, you'll never actually gain the understanding of the other side. Then you zoom out, you detach, then you realize, okay, there's more ways yeah. to this. Right? Yeah. It's, it takes a very emotionally secure person to be able to detach. Like At least that's one thing that right. I've noticed with myself. It's like, it's so difficult to do that in the moment because it's like, you attach your emotions to the action. Yeah, it's crazy. Exactly. By the way, uh, oh, sorry. I think, (laughs) what I want to say is about like, how you were talking about like discipline, right? And I know it's sort of a little bit tangent, but like, I want to hear, I think discipline and motivation are like, I often think they're confused Mm -hmm. because a lot of people think when they're working on a task and that they're saying like, okay, I need motivation to do this. I'm not, I, I don't want to go mm-hmm. do my work or I don't want to, I'm procrastinating because I don't have the motivation. But I really believe that motivation is short term. And like the whole thing about like motivation, like, okay, I read a new cool article. I'm going to go work in this field. I'm going to build, try to build this AI project, right? But then it really takes discipline in order to continue to do that. I mean, most people, they confuse motivation with discipline because they think that 
motiv- they need motivation when actually they need discipline. Because mm. motivation by its nature is short term. You get motivated to complete something to do a task and you go. And I'm saying developing discipline is so <laughs> incredibly hard, especially for nice. things you don't want to do. I'm not saying I'm good at it. I'm saying I'm working on it. But that's just something that I think it's crazy. And when I really finally understood this is sort of I heard this quote from someone. I'm not too sure who, but basically something to the lines of the fact that how when you're talking about like personal success and fulfillment, how are you going to allow your own mind to hold mm. you back? Like when you have this massive potential, you have this knowledge, your skill sets, like losing motivation, getting distracted. How are you going to let your mind hold you back from achieving success? And I was just like sitting in a park one day. I was just thinking about that for like an hour straight. I was like, that's absolutely crazy. Like, it changed my view on distractions and like procrastination. I'm not saying I don't do it. Definitely fall victim to it. But I want to hear your thoughts, and especially since you've done a lot of um, reading on Jocko Williams, about how you think discipline plays a role in our life. Hmm. I mean, I'm just going to put the immortal words of Jocko Willink to, like, on this podcast. Discipline equals freedom. Boom. Problem solved. It says, I literally cannot even express, like, man, the second you said discipline, like, the first thing I heard was Goggins in my head yelling, like, oh, was lit- he has this uh, saying something about, like, motivation is bullshit and you need to be driven. And that was literally ringing through my head the second you said that. And, yeah, like, it's so crazy how you're literally hardwired to take the path of least resistance but in today's society, like the ones that are the most valuable are the ones that take the path of most resistance, right? So to answer your question about discipline, yeah, like 110%, if you don't have discipline, you're basically useless. Because like even this morning, like I've been trying recently to like start a workout regimen. Like I've been doing workouts on and off for, the, for like throughout the entire year, but I wanted to like really get consistent with it. So what I ended up finding is the fact that the second you start asking your brain for its opinion on whether you should do something or not, it's always no. Like, you know, you're getting out of bed. You're like, like, if you just go and do the workout, like, whatever, it's done, right? Like, you just ignore it. You ignore the suck, basically. But the second you're like, should I do a workout today? And you're like consulting the mind. The mind is obviously going to say no. And it it has the advantage because it knows exactly what you don't like. And it pushes you away from that. So, yeah. Like, I think that's why, yeah. (laughs) I definitely think, I definitely, yeah, definitely agree with you on that. I think, I mean, that's Mm. true in the absence of motivation, right? But like working out something that like not a lot of people have motivation for. And maybe because working out is results driven. It's like when you see like that six pack (laughs) coming in, you're like, oh, damn, okay, I'm doing ab workout 10 times a day, you know, let's go. But when you've been like doing ab workouts for a year and you don't see any progress and you're like, what's going on here? And I think one thing that like doesn't, this is ringing my head right now is it, it was in the book Atomic Habits by James Clear. And I believe he was talking to one of the Olympic um, weight trainers and he said something to the effect though he was asking the question about like, how do Olympic athletes get to their level of success and level of performance? And like the weight trainer responded that they simply are able to come in and like do the weights when everybody else stops. He's like, it's nothing crazy. They're not like hardwired differently. No, nothing in their DNA. It's just that everybody has motivation to become a weight trainer. But when the motivation stops and then 
and then you stop that's what sets out olympic athletes versus when the motivation stops they just continue to go mm. for like up to that highest level and that even when i read that the first time i was like stop and internalize that and just be like damn you know yeah. discipline really does equal freedom absolutely like man uh there's this meme going on on instagram right now like in the i guess uh like gym kind of niche and it's this guy who's about to lift like i don't know 600 pounds and he's just like everyone want to be a bodybuilder but no one want to lift this heavy ass weight and i'm like this is literally echoing in my mind the second you say that but yeah it definitely makes sense like what are your t- i wanted to yeah. ask you like what are your main tips and techniques for like maintaining discipline because obviously everyone's different but i want to hear like what's your side of it discipline could by no means before i get started is um I mean, like, not an expert on this at all. I'm definitely working to it. Definitely fall victim to it. I think one of the initial things you do is when you... I think the first step in achieving... Yeah. Discipline is used to, like, achieve your goals, right? And the first step mm-hmm. to do that is having goals. Like, you got to set the smart goals. Like, I used to think of smart <laughs> goals as a school, and I hated, like, want to stay all away from it. I'm like, out of the teachers, make you write down your goals for, like, this, your marks or whatever. I'm like, no, this is useless. But when you actually need to set, like, smart, actionable, achievable goals, specific, mm. whatever the criteria is, that's the first step in discipline. I think that does take reflection. It does take a lot of exploring in terms of finding out what you want to do. And when you have that goals, something I like to do is, something I've been trying to do more recently is before you start something when you earlier, mm. is write down why you want to do it. Because, obviously, in order to start something, usually it takes motivation. Like, even if it's a little bit of motivation, you don't just go from, like, hating the thing and then you have, like, ultimate discipline. The motivation will ultimately get you started in doing that. So you write down... Why are you motivated? Why do you want to do it? Maybe you want to do a workout regimen. Maybe you want to have a six pack, right? And you want to mm. be fit. You want to be able to do, eat whatever you want, all that. You write those down. And then whenever you start to sort of lose your motivation, you go back to that list and you reignite that spark. Mm. As in like, why am I doing the thing I am? And it's just like, because I want to achieve X, Y, Z, I want to do these. And that just for me helps to like re-clear and like take out all the fuzz out of my mind as to why I'm doing it. Definitely mm. a lot of things do go wrong. This is the next thing is definitely just scheduling, like having a set. I think routines are really helpful. I have not been able to do this because like there's so much changing, but just like whether it's time blocking, whether it's like first thing in the morning, just having a set time and making it as easy as possible to get into it. Back with atomic habits, reference number two. Um, his second principle for making atomic habits that like last and mm. atomic habits is all about discipline once again right it's like habits are long term discipline he's like you need to make it as easy as possible to get into it so if you're working out for example like um like, for example, I have my room all the way on the top floor and like if I'm doing the treadmill it's all the way in the basement right and I have to go I have to get up <coughs> out of my desk stop the task I'm doing yeah. then go put on my shoes my socks go all the way to the basement and if you like that's a lot of unnecessary friction between and that's the more time you have in friction the more time mm-hmm. you're like the more fuzz is going to develop and by the when you sort of starting walking on the stairs <laughs> your mind's like nah you're not doing this go watch tv yeah. or something you know Just, it gives up so really eliminating the friction between what you're trying to do as like keep your workout shoes like if you want in the morning right next mm-hmm. to your bed like right next to your bed with your socks you just get up and go for a run you know or doing stuff like that also Part of discipline yeah. is distractions. Like, I'm literally like <laughs> taking word for word from Atomic Habits right now. It's nice. actually one of my all-time favorite books. If you guys haven't re- read it, 
I definitely recommend it. But it's just about like eliminating distractions and not really eliminating distractions, but it's sort of like taking the value away from distractions. And I think that just comes over time. And like first time when you look at it, like if like the most common distraction is your phone, right? Or like most common, I think it has been for me in the past or like social media or these things. Like maybe you need a site blocker. Maybe you put your phone in another room. But eventually once you start building it up, you have that when your phone's in your room, you yeah. actually, it loses the value of social media and you'd rather just stay focused on doing anything. I think that once you reach that stay, that's just amazing. That's optimal. I started getting to that level, I think with social media and like mm. YouTube and even like video gaming, which I used to do like the Friday nights used to do more, sort of lost that value. Once you do that, that's just, it's like, it's a point of success because now I have yeah. my phone on my bed or I have it in my desk and I'm working and I see like Instagram or YouTube right there yeah, yeah. already opened, but I just don't open it because I'd rather do what I'm doing. And that's just crazy. So yeah, what about you? I mean, definitely, I know yeah. we have, when I first met you, I think it was last summer, around a year ago, we had our first talk yeah. all about like motivation, discipline, time management. Yeah, so I'd so, love to hear how those changed. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I agree year. with what you were saying about like the distractions losing their value. Like this is something that uh, Jocko Willing brought up in one of his podcasts as well. Like I think he stopped eating like junk food and stuff like that. Like he was addicted to it. I don't know if it was him or if it was one of his friends, but he was relaying a story about that. And he was basically saying that once you leave it for like, let's say six months, a year, a year and a half, you come back to it, you eat it. Like you, you don't want to eat it literally. Like you, like you consume it and it's like, okay, cool. It tastes good. Yeah. But like that desire for consuming more isn't there because the novelty, as you were saying, is gone. Like there's simply, it's not novel anymore. It's like you're used to it. Right. So I guess for me, like, I don't know, I'm still picking and trying to find different ways to like implement it in my life. For me, I just, Definitely. like, I, I'd say I'm, like, absurd. My way of doing it is, like, absurdly simple compared to other people. I literally have, like, a notion to-do list, and then I sit down and work. Like, I just I just get rid of everything, basically. Like, my desk right now has my monitor, my, like, I mean, obviously the recording equipment for the podcast, my mouse, a pencil, which I should probably put away Wait. after this is done because I'm not writing anything down, and my earbuds, and that's it. Literally. Like, even if I wanted to get distracted, I can't. And then the second, like, this is coming from a guy who used to be, like, an extreme procrastinator. Like, I couldn't focus for more than 20 minutes when I was in grade 7, grade 8-ish. I think part of it just is just gradual escalation of your ability to focus. Like, you know, 25 minutes, okay, let's try 30, 40, 40. And then eventually get to a point where you can sit down for three hours and crank out. Yeah, I, th- I think, I don't, yeah, I think people, like, especially yeah. on YouTube, kind of complicate it a lot. Like, oh, you know, this is exactly what you need to do to become, like, a focus. Go- like, no. Just, like, basic guidelines, you know, make it a habit. Uh, like, I'm about to publish a video on, like, hyperfocus on a couple days. I read a book, by the way. It's from this guy named Chris Billy. Amazing. Like, it's like Deep Work 2.0. You, you gotta pick it up. It's like, Amazing. not Atomic Habits level, but it's still, it's still really good. So, you guys listening and also Ohan. Yeah, definitely. Definitely allowed it. So, yeah, so one of the things yeah, I was mentioning sure. that really struck with me was the idea of an intentional space. So the idea is that, like, imagine your attentional space is like a circle, right? And everything that you're trying to do needs to fit inside that circle. Okay. And the harder the task and the more complicated it is, the bigger it is. So if you view it like that, your attention is a finite resource. And then if you, like, 
Like for example, let's say you were working on a research paper, right? That's obviously huge, so it's going to consume most of your attention space. If you try like multitasking, right? Like and trying doing another complex task, you don't your attention space isn't big enough, so you fail, and then that's when you stop being productive. So the idea is that as long as it fits inside your attention yeah. space, and as long as there's nothing that's competing for your attention, you're basically fine. And over time, your attention space will grow. And then the task will also go along with it because you can pay more attention to it and therefore get more stuff done. So yeah, sorry, that was a little bit of a rant, but like I think understanding and internalizing that concept for me was kind of what got me from like twenty five minutes to three hours. I think that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I love that analogy. <laughs> definitely gonna steal that whenever I explain yeah. to someone else. But I definitely think that. The point you mentioned a lot of good points. There. Starting off with like the whole gradual escalation building up, I do think that's true for anything. Like like the weightlifter meme is, and you can't mm-hmm. go and lift six hundred, right? But if you commit yourself to lifting ten, fifteen, twenty, you will build yourself up there. And I also think that's one of the dangers of multitasking. Like a lot of people, and especially a lot of when like you have a lot of priorities, right? Because you have your work, maybe personal, maybe you're trying to play some sports and write a research paper. You have a lot of things, and when you go to to do those, yeah. it, it might start to get overcomplicated. As like, okay, I, you might get to overwhelm me. <laughs> you have like fifty things to do today. How do I do this, right? But then really just focusing down on like, okay, I'm next two mm-hmm. hours. I want to do deep work. I want to do deep work. By the way, is like work. I I didn't make this definition. By the way, as a work that like moves you closer towards your goals. So I want to do two hours of deep work on my research paper, right? And then you only focus on those. Maybe time blocking is like a strategy I don't personally love to do, but a lot of people really like to do it and it really helps them focus. Yeah. It's like you set aside time in your day to do whatever is the other task. And for like you have certain like two, three hours long chunks, just go into the flow state and really make progress on your deep work and whatever you want. I think another thing you mentioned is sort of, you talked about how like mm. the bigger, the more complex task, the more it attention space it consumes right and i think that's why it's sometimes helpful to especially when you're lacking motivation or lacking discipline i should say to get started on a task is you might break it down like lift to write a research paper maybe write mm. 500 words today or put on your to-do list write 500 words and then you achieve that goal that's sort of yeah. how the pomodoro technique works is that it says okay i only have to work for 25 minutes and like even your grade five you're like young that you're like 25 minutes is nothing and you get a full five minute break like when i first heard that like at the like almost a year ago i was like what that's crazy like that's so much time wasted just work for 28 and a half work for 29 and that's crazy but then that's how the pomodoro technique works is that you break down the smaller tasks and you achieve those also another way is that going back to perspective a lot of things are i was actually talking this with so my friend are we unnecessarily like our mind doesn't like our mind hates doing hard things right and so when we classify things or even think about things as really hard it increases our friction to start it like let's for example that you're doing or we're both (laughs) high scores right we're doing an article right that's something we want to do something we're choosing in our time to make or making the a video on hyper focus but when you view it as like i have to do Mm. work Right, like I have to do like work, like actual W, like work for three mm. hours today on my article. Then just the signal of work is like sort of like it sends a negative impulse to your brain. Like, okay, work is negative. How do I avoid this task? Right. When you really reframe it as like 
I have three hours of my day and I'm choosing <laughs> to put this time into doing this amazing article to grow mm. my knowledge. It's just crazy because then you're reframing it in your article from something that's work and like incredibly negative emotion, something that I am choosing to put so much of my time into doing this thing, which I like doing. And that's just amazing. That's something. Oh, I wanted to get your opinion on this is that I was reading somewhere. I'm not sure from exactly where I might've been watching a video or something about how like we control all yeah. of our time. I just want to get your take on that yeah, with like time going, management. Right? <laughs> that's where it's from yes. yeah i was i was watching yeah. that it's it's like bro the, the before we get into the productivity youtubers like you're saying like they definitely have good tips but like why is your video on like how to do focus work like that's where i think mm. it gets kind of counterintuitive and over explained yeah i guess you know, you're saying for yeah i mean you control all of your time i haven't thought too deeply on it like hmm you control over time so even yeah i mean you know what i guess i guess it does make sense like for example if you have like schoolwork right like a lot of people mostly the people watching there's like students tks people so what's interesting is that the people who are like doing right. schoolwork and everything in a way i agree it does seem like you don't have control of your time but i can see where you're coming from as well like technically you're choosing to do that because the consequences of not doing it in your head are larger than the consequences of doing it so so yeah technically you do have 100 exactly. control of your time but i guess i think the difference is like mm-hmm. i'm trying to find a way to articulate this properly like you do have control over everything you do but you don't always have the choice if you know what i'm saying like you can control it, but ultimately the whether you, whether you go down one path or another regarding like the choices to doing that is not always, I guess, in your control. Yeah, so definitely, I hundred percent agree with that. Yeah, I think there definitely are like the way I used to view before is like I'm I don't have time for mm-hmm. something. Is that this is one of like the biggest mind shifts that occurred this year is like this whole f- shift yeah. from I don't have time for something has really shifted to I'm not mm. prioritizing that thing enough. <laughs> and that's one of the key things when it comes to time yeah. management that just like changes is like you you know you have enough time to work out. You don't prioritize working out enough to or you have enough time to get that thing going. And if you actually think about it, it's very difficult to actually like shift in this mindset i'm definitely not approached yeah. to working on doing it but just the whole shift from you were choosing to do it that's just crazy like you, yeah. it's all about your priorities yeah it's basically it taking ownership what you in do. a sense right like in it's an example of taking extreme ownership so the idea is that you know obviously life has a lot of problems there are a lot of things that can go wrong and the idea is that nothing will ever get solved like even in a team scenario like when there are team conflicts or even when your personal life Nothing ever gets solved until you own up to it and you recognize that, hey, it might not be my fault, but it is my responsibility. And then you actively pursue to find a solution. Right. I think that's also what you're talking about with regards to time management. Like, in a way, your time being like you not having enough time isn't really your fault. Like, you know, something's just happened. You have to take care of them. But it is your responsibility. So I think that... I think sparking that extreme ownership mindset shift that forces you to be like, hey, you know what? My life sucks, but it sucks because I... Like, it might not suck because of you, but it will continue to suck if you think that it sucks because of other people. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah, that's definitely. A good way to put it for sure. I mean, you definitely don't like. Yeah, you said there's definitely things that come up, and you don't mm. have infinite time, right? And I think okay, I keep going back to this point. It's just like stuck in my head for the past couple of days. But like, how about how the two thing about like yeah. death gives life meaning? I think that's just like when you think about it. For me, like when I first heard that, I was a little bit shocked, and, like scared, mm. and, like afraid, like you know the traditional emotion that pop up. If you really think about it at the time, you're like, that's mm. so motivated for me now, right? Because if you're looking at like what are the if you zoom out, like I talked in the beginning, you focus yeah. like on the big issues, the big things that are driving it towards dystopian. You focus, you have like a hundred years to make progress and shift your side. <laughs> what? How much can you do in a hundred years? And that's just crazy. It's like you only have like I don't know how many certain days, but in those how in those days, yeah. what can you do? What's the most you can do? And then if you can literally make a calendar of every single day of your life, assuming like you use like an average lifespan of like eighty or ninety, and then check off what you did each day, and you're like, okay, I have this many days left. Yeah, that's just incredible. And I think that's yeah, just incredibly motivating. I mean, me. I think my opinion on this is a little bit different than yours, but I definitely see where you're coming from. Like, I think in my opinion, I feel like if you well, like obviously it's good to reflect on your death and everything that's a part of stoicism as you were mentioning but i feel like also doing it too much can lead to like a depressive state like i know definitely for me like if you're always thinking that hey this day is like ticking by oh my god i have to get something done etc it can kind of like it always puts your focus on the future instead of the present and obviously if you're always living in the future then you're not living really because the only time that ever exists is the now so I think like I would slightly modify like for me for my usage, I would take that philosophy and slightly modify it to not necessarily always like reflect on your death or like uh, allow death to give life its meaning, but use death as the motivating factor to live in the present in a way. I think that's kind of how I would take it. Like right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I definitely agree with you. I think. Definitely, like, going death too much is a little bit depressing. And it's, I think, yeah, I mean, like, I, I definitely wouldn't want to. Obviously, I definitely don't want to be someone who's like, okay, I have 3,000 days left, crossing it off, right? Because then it also gets, like, panicking. But, like, you also got to, mm. I mean, the way you put it's amazing. I love the way you put it. It's how, like, death is, like, makes you live in the present. Because that really allows you to say that, okay, you have maybe yeah. 10,000 days left, right? Okay. Or like 10 million hours left, but now. Absolutely. So use those hours, you know, don't just waste yeah. them thinking about the next 10,000. <laughs> do something like do it, go do, yeah. do whatever you love to do and use them. That's crazy. Oh yeah. And then hmm. it does play into stoicism. And that's how I sort of like beginning thought about this is like, you can always use it as like, I think this is the, there's two principles of like death and stoicism where it comes to talk about um, yeah. it's memento mori and amor fati. So amor fati is basically something where it's like everything, it's sort of aligns with what you're saying. It's like death is sort of what gives its meaning. Yeah. So love everything. You know, like, like you have this much time to plan it. You have this much time in the present. Love everything you're doing. Don't be negative. Love whatever happens to you because like it's happening to you in the present experience there eh? but then the one i relate with more is really memento mori is that actually this is something i don't relate to this that much but i definitely think it's a valid principle it's about how like nothing really matters if you zoom out that much 
right? So, like, the way you think is, like, don't, like, live your life, like, standing in some forest, like, going into hyper-crazy state because nothing matters. But if you apply it to the small things and, like, nothing matters so much, or even not even look at death, zoom out in, like, five, ten years, what are you doing today that, like, if everybody's stressed out, right? If you write down every, like, the 15 things you're stressed out about, what is really going to matter in five years? Right? It's like, you know, if you get like a 95 versus like an 85 on your school assignment, in five <laughs> years, it's not gonna change, not gonna end the world, you know? If you don't, like, oh my god, or if like, there's definitely big things that you could, but like, it's just yeah. worth showing that like, a lot of stress isn't worth, you should, it's not worth like, the amount of mental energy yeah. you're putting into it just by yeah. worrying about it. And you know, you know, just basing off that, I think that's kind of why people are so obsessed with productivity. But that's also why I believe that the word productivity, in a sense, should kind of be changed. Because I feel like, like what you were mentioning about the fact that, hey, you know, death gives life its meaning. And the fact that there is no meaning in itself, in it of itself as a meaning. Like, I feel like when people talk about productivity, it's more thinking about the future, as I was mentioning before. But also that it moves the focus, it moves the needle from, as you were mentioning, like, Instead of worrying about, hey, you know what, since life doesn't have any meaning, and then adding that last bit, which is, oh, because it doesn't have meaning, it is meaning, productivity is almost just like, okay, life doesn't have any meaning, so I'm going to do whatever I can in this time, whatever, screw it. Like, that's the vibes that the word gives off in a way. Like, you know, you think of like a cold, large corporation, like pumping out products, that's what productivity, literally, and that's where the word originated from. I think if the word was changed to something else, like... I don't know what it is, but maybe activities that contributed to your happiness in a day, people would begin looking at it differently, like much differently. Yeah. 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 I think that's definitely amazing. If you think about that's like the mindset shift again, that like I mentioned before, is that how you like shifting the frame of mind from work. Yeah. It's like doing things you enjoy. Absolutely. Like productivity is associated with work. And it's associated, in my mind, product, it's associated with work, discipline, mm-hmm. and, like, negativity, right? It's, like, overall, give negative vibe because, like, okay, I have to, productive, I need to be as productive, do as much as I can, but, like, yeah. it's in stuff I don't want to do. If you shift it towards stuff you do want to do. And this is why, overall, I think that, like, when you look at all these different perspectives and all these philosophies and stuff, sort of yeah. wrapping up, because I know we got to wrap up the next five, ten minutes, is that when you think about beginning where you said the forefront the forefront of tech and i don't definitely like we're in the ai revolution right now i mean i'm finally a part of it yeah. after my internship from nanotech i think it really we got to start like when you're trying to do whole, whole brain emulation right when you're trying to replicate the whole brain it's like how can you develop ai to a point of human intelligence when we don't even know facts. what human intelligence Straight is facts. Right? and when i first thought about it that's just like that was so crazy cool to me it's like, I, I don't know what I want to go into, sort of, I'm just exploring, but I just, like, I was so drawn to neuroscience because, first of all, neuroscience was so cool, but second of all, it's like, if you want to work towards the actual future of AI human intelligence, you need to understand what human intelligence is. You know, maybe this neurobiology, understanding the brain, understanding all these different, but just being able to have this conversation and that we don't know what's going on in our brains yeah. is absolutely know, crazy. Yeah, like, just to link what that together, I guess, like, it's almost like because life doesn't in itself have a meaning, it means that you should do as much as you can to make it have its own meaning. Like, you know, by being, pro- I mean, I don't like to use the word productive anymore. 
I'm, why am I saying anymore? Like, I just changed that in the last five minutes. You know what? Screw it. doesn't matter. Point is, point is that just because life doesn't have its meaning, it basically means that you have to work to create a meaning for yourself and others, which is, like, dubbed productivity. And the process of, like, extracting something from nothing, extracting a meaning from something that is outside from a religious perspective, like, meaningless, in itself is, like, some act of the human brain that we don't understand. And then linking that to AI, it's like, if we don't understand how the hell our mind's doing something crazy like that, because if you look at what productivity is, you're basically making something out of nothing. Like, you have a bunch of jumbled thoughts in your head, and you're, like, like, if you're writing an article, you just have thoughts. And then those thoughts are somehow converted into words and letters and syntax put onto a page using your hands and your motor skills and then onto a virtual... Like, it's crazy what the hell the human brain is doing if you really sit to think about it. And it's even crazier. And this is like the next level of crazy that an AI is trying to replicate or at least we're trying to make an artificial brain that can replicate that same mechanism of making meaning from something that is meaningless. <laughs> I think that really, to put it, is like what is actually like the age long crest, like what is the meaning of life? Is yeah. that there is no meaning of life, right? Everybody, and it goes back to again <laughs> the first point, yeah. it's crazier, everything's connected. Is that like it's all about your perspective, yeah. right? And your perspective, once again, is your brain. You don't understand, we don't understand what perspective is. But it's all about like there is no meaning of life. Life has yeah. meaning whatever you make it. You know, whatever it and that once again is your brain. <laughs> and everything's so crazy linked because at the heart of everything we do yeah. is really the brain. But like extracting meaning from nothing, extracting uh, meaning from something that doesn't have meaning, mm. or even like your perspective on how you view the word, how you view overall life as it is, is that doesn't have meaning. Yeah. It has infinite meaning, actually. It, it, it's, it should be rephrased. That, like, life has no meaning. Life has infinite meaning. I think that's a change that we need to go. It's like, what is the meaning of life? It's like, no, what is my meaning of the interpretation yeah. of yeah. life? Man, I swear to God, right? every one of the three bucket podcasts that I've done with people, it goes something along the lines of this. We'll talk about a bunch of topics. At the end, we'll find that all those topics are somehow linked together in some sort of magic fashion. And I promise to the guys listening to, like, guys and gals listening to this that... It's not like planned or anything. I literally don't know how this is, how this came together. And then <laughs> the people fine. listening it's to this fine. like leave with an existential crisis after surfing for YouTube and just trying to chill for 20 minutes. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Just we, we like talking about this stuff. Anyway. <laughs> oh, actually, you know what? I, I was looking at like my list of questions and the next question is also linked somehow. Like we were talking about the brain. So my next question is like, what got you into the field of nanotech? Which obviously, like nanotech and neuroscience, are things that you've been experienced in, which is linked to the brain, which is linked to everything else we just yeah. talked about. <laughs> I think it's slightly different, not as much of a whole <laughs> philosophical answer I could give on this one. But mm. nanotech was really driven by when you look at zoom mm. out and you look at like the macro issues facing humanity. And there's also a lot yeah. of micro issues underneath that, right? Like you perform the root cause analysis to form, because obviously we can't solve world hunger. We can solve one of them. If the nanotech is just, because nanotech mm. is sort of a platform technology, and that's what we like to view, it has strengths of its own, but it pairs best when it complements mm. another field, right? Like for example, manufacturing, we're gonna get atomic field manufacturing, that's you can do crazy, crazy things with it. So that's why I was just thinking Nanotech, I was really drawn to Nanotech by its applications and its straight applications in problem solving. And neuroscience, like I said, 
it's kind of crazy because like I was yeah. trying to figure out why I was into nanotech. Why I was drawn to nanotech is what I was doing with nanotech. It's like, okay, I'm going to have like, yeah. I, I got a paradox in my head right now. But like, that's basically about short answers about the yeah. applications and problems. Yeah, that's one thing I've realized with a lot of different technologies is that they're tools. Like I've talked about this earlier, so I won't go too deep into it. But like, you know, all exactly. these emerging technologies are really just a vehicle of enacting change to problems. Yeah, that's amazing. And I guess just to wrap it off, because I know you have to leave soon, and also the people listening are probably getting tired of us bickering now. <laughs> so, like, what are your... <laughs> Facts, man. Anyway, so what are your goals for the next five to ten years? Like, I ask this question on almost every podcast, and, like, it's really interesting to see how everyone's answers are so different from one another. But, like, they're all, like, very noble pursuits. So I was just wondering, like, what's yours? I think, okay, my goal is that, the first thing I want to say is I don't have this all worked out, is that I know I definitely want to go into the field of, like, one of the yeah. branches of, like, emerging technologies. I've definitely, like, this past year has been one of the most fun years of my life, and I really want to strive for, strive for impact whenever I'm doing. I have some more different goals than, like, building a, building a personal brand and, like, starting a startup and really scaling that up to certain user base and building all those things but it all revolves in the point of just keep the, it's all like the values right so oh, i'm just gonna pull up this thing really quick here is that i had this the values is that the values I'm, is like value number one is they're all around value of impact value number two i really want to be challenged as in like whatever i'm doing i need to be challenged in the work i'm doing and i also want Happy happiness is the most cliche. I promised myself I wasn't gonna bring it up in this podcast, but somehow I brought up the podcast, so I guess they're here. But happiness, as in, is like happiness should be reframed into like fulfillment, right? Like joyful fulfillment, as in doing what I love doing while yeah. optimizing for impact and working to really solve the problems that will drive humanity forward. These are really cliche <laughs> answers. Okay. And I'm sorry about that because I don't have everything to figure it out. I know like certain aspects underneath, but one of the, I think one of the beauty of the things that like, I don't have everything figured out. And right now I'm in a mm. stage where I'm just exploring, obviously because like, that's how everybody says, oh, you're young, you should explore, right? So I'm just exploring, seeing what I, seeing what floats my boat. We can end it on a really cliche note. Cause I think that's where it came to anyways. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. Uh, I mean, my- What about yours? Gotta go yeah. now, but like, I guess some I'm just gonna quickly do this. Like, my goals are really similar to yours too. Like, I want to solve problems and I want to do that at a scale which can impact pe people. Like, you know, ultimately everyone should be aiming for the continued alleviation of suffering because I guess that's the noblest pursuit. Like, you know, reducing the amount of suffering on this planet. And I think, I think just to like end this off, like, we as a species have made tremendous progress to like alleviating suffering. Like, poverty has gone down 30. 35 percentage points in the last 100 years, which is crazy. Like, now more people than ever have access to basic natural resources, resource commodities. Like, I was reading something where South Africa right now, sorry, like Sub-Saharan Africa, which is like technically deemed the world's poorest region, has the same amount of natural resources and GDP as Portugal, which was one of the wealthiest countries, did back in the 1960s. So I think, the, I think it's really easy to, going back to the utopia, yeah, I think it's really easy going back to the utopia dystopia thing to assume that the world's, you know, going to hell, whatever, that everything is wrong, everyone's being systemically oppressed. 
But I think that really sitting down and reflecting on just how far we've come is definitely in order. Yeah. So yeah, man. Thanks for coming on this. Thanks so much for having you. It was one of the most amazing conversations I've ever had. <laughs> I loved it. Same. All right. Same. Anyway, so for the people watching this, uh, I don't really know what to say here. Like, like, subscribe. Feels like I'm begging for something. Never mind. Just, you know what? Enjoy it. Have a good takeaway from. Uh, have a good couple of takeaways from this podcast. And yeah, see how you can begin to improve your life and aim for the continued alleviation of suffering. See if you can, you know, apply the tips we mentioned here to maybe be more, not even productive, but do things that make you happy. And yeah, it's perfect. See you guys later then. <laughs>